0: So good morning. Uh, Today we will, for some 45 minutes, look at the basic legal principles that underpin today's WTO system, the World Trade Organization's legal system. And the way we will do this is to concentrate on four basic principles of the old GATT. And the old GATT treaty, and that's what we'll do uh, together, is now part of the WTO treaty. And these old GATT principles have influenced the evolution of the entire GATT system for 50 years, and then afterwards, the WTO. So historically, the GATT was only part of what was to become the Havana Charter, or the Charter for the creation of an international trade organization. This all came about towards the end of the Second World War when some countries of course realized that we needed to restructure international relations. So there was creation, conceptualization of the United Nations system, but also the Bretton Woods with the IMF, the International Monetary System, the World Bank, and what was to become the ITO, the International Trade Organization which negotiations took place here in Geneva, at least initially. And as part of this negotiation, the GATT semi-small negotiations took place. GATT stands for General Agreement on Tariff and Trade. In the documents that you have attached, you can see a series of boxes. Today, we will concentrate on the box that is named GATT 1994. The GATT 1994, as you can see, is only one component of what is today the Annex 1A. There's Annex 1A, Annex 1B, and C. This is the series of rules on trade in goods, Annex 1A, Annex 1B trade in services, and Annex 1C intellectual property uh, agreements. Let's now look at what are these rules on GATT. Four of them I mentioned. The first one, the obligation to respect tariff commitments. The second one is the most favored nation principle. The third one, the prohibition on quotas at the border. And the last one, the national treatment. I'll try to explain generally what they mean. Give an example and then try briefly to explain how and what they mean today in the WTO. So the first rule is that countries in the GATT agreed to respect their tariff commitments. As I mentioned, this is part and this was part of a bigger trade negotiations that dealt with things other than tariff. But it became clear at the time that the most obvious restriction on trade were tariff. What are tariffs? Tariffs are sums of money collected at the border upon the importation of goods. So let's look at what it could look like if I take countries that I will call A and B, and where firms in country A want to export tables in country B. So, we have country A and B. And here you have in A a producers of table. And let's say that this table is worth 10 US dollars. And the firm in A wants to export in B. And here it's the border. What happened after the Second World War, and I'm using completely funny numbers, but just to make explanations more simple, country B is a sovereign state in international law. States can do what they want if they respect, of course, their treaty obligations. If there's no treaty obligations on tariff, B can say, okay, I will accept your table, but when you cross the border, I want to collect 115 percent ad valorem tariff, that is to say 150% of the value of the table is collected as a tariff. So the table arrives at the border, $15 is paid in tariff to B, and then the table goes for sale in country B at a price minimum of, of course, 25 but plus other costs, distribution, advertisement, etc. So, first issue, first basic GATT obligation was to try to agree on disciplines concerning the level of tariff. And the first principle in Article 2 of GATT is that the countries will respect the maximum level of tariff that they have negotiated. So how does it work? Again, I'm making it very simple, if not to say simplistic. The way it works is simply that the representative of A goes to B and says, Look, I've been sending tables to you, and you've been collecting 150%, but some other day, 175%, some other day, maybe even 300%. Why don't you, B, promise me never to collect more than, let's say, 150%? This would be your commitment, maximum level of tariff. In exchange of what, for instance, country A says to B, in exchange of what, when you send me shoes, for instance, when firms in your country send me shoes, I've been also collecting tariff that varied from 175% to 250%. If you promise me that when I export table, you don't collect more than 150%, I will in exchange, and these numbers can vary, I will in exchange commit not to collect more than 175% on your shoes. Now, you may wonder, why would country B accept to bind itself not to collect more than 150%? Why? Well, basically, it's because the firms In country B, the firms of shoes, for instance, would go to the government B and say, yes, yes, please give this commitment, except not to collect more than 150% on importation of tables, because in exchange, country A will never collect more than 175% on my export of shoes. And me, firms producing shoes, me, I give a lot of jobs and I'm very important for your economy. So it is for country B, the government of B, to balance the interest they have in protecting, for instance, the domestic producers of tables. Because in country B, the domestic producers of table will go to the government and say, no, 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 no. Don't accept 150. You should go to 300 or take no commitments because I don't want competition on tables from abroad. But then it's for the government B to decide how much it can impose on its table industry and how much favor it can give to its shoe producers industry. And this is always negotiations that take place within country B. So the first principle is that countries will respect the commitments they took on tariff. And in this little example, B would commit never to collect more than 150% on the importation of tables in woods, for instance. If you go on the third floor of the GATT building, the WTO building today, you have a room with binders for each country, and then you have, for each product, the maximum tariff that is legally possible to collect. A round of negotiation, initially, was a round where countries sat together and tried to agree on reduction of tariffs. These rounds of negotiations took place, eight of them took place every so many years. That's the first principle. Countries must respect the maximum level of binding they've committed to. They're not obliged, but of course they are encouraged to. Because if country B gives a commitment on importation of tables, it will also get a commitment from another member on its exports. The second principle is called the most nation favor principle. This is the idea of a club. Very sort of traditional club idea. What does it mean? It means that you must treat members of the club better than those outside the club. The club is the GATT, today the WTO. But the MFN principle is also relevant in tariff negotiation because it provides for the multilateralization of this bilateral negotiation. So in practice, what does it mean? simply that once this negotiation is completed and country B has accepted to bind itself to bind the tariff level on its tables 250 percent and by the way the technical term for this is is binding the binding is the maximum level of duty once this is done and let's say country C is also member of the GATT country C starts selling and exporting tables to B, it means that C can also benefit from the maximum level of duty committed. So if C sells table and export tables at whatever price, let's say $12, when they arrive at the border, country B cannot collect more than 150% on those tables, in fact, on all similar tables coming from GATT, contracting parties, coming from WTO members. So this is the second principle, that any privilege or benefit such as the benefit coming from a maximum level of tariff, any benefit is given to all GATT contracting parties. And it's important also to understand that it is any benefit given to any country. So if, for instance, country B, in the context of a bilateral treaty between B and Russia, for instance, Russia is not member of the GATT or the WTO today, if B had given a tariff privilege to imports from Russia, all GATT contracting parties and today WTO members are entitled to the same benefit. So benefits that a GATT WTO member gives to any to imports from any country must be given to all imports of all GATT WTO members. So we have seen now two basic principles. The first one, an effort to reduce tariff uh, tariff levels, but mainly a commitment to respect maximum negotiated. I should say immediately that although these are binding, there is a procedure to revise a tariff level and increase it. Every three years, governments can request a renegotiation, but will have to give compensation in exchange. So, respect of bindings, most favor nation principle, second uh, principle, fundamental principles. These two first are really the backbone of the system. The two other principles that we call also market, ac, market access principle are the prohibition of quotas and national treatment. Prohibition of quotas, very simple. It's that at the border you can have tariff. At the level you manage to negotiate, but you don't have quantitative restrictions. At the border, you have, in principle, only tariff. You don't have quotas or quantitative restrictions. Why? Let me give you a simple explanation, and you'll understand why. I repeat again here, because my table was getting dirty, country E A. Towards country B, that export stable. And we said that the binding was 150. As I said, these numbers are astronomical because today, on average, in rich countries, Imports of industrial products are subject to an average of four percent ad valorem tariff. So you can see that the tariff level have gone down quite a bit through uh, negotiations. So we mentioned binding at 150 percent. Article two of the GATT says you must respect your binding. Of course, you can go below, but you can never go above. The other principle, the most favoured nation principle, whatever tariff you have at the border, whatever benefit or privilege you give to a country, you must give to imports from all GATT WTO members. And the third rule, at the border, you can only have tariff. At the border, you cannot have quotas. Of course, we'll see there are exceptions that allow for quotas, environmental exception, religion exception, but general rule, no quota. Imagine that you are the representative of country A, you're in Geneva, and you've negotiated this deal at 150. You go back home, you're delighted. Of course, you get a promotion, everybody's happy, because producers of table in country A know that with a maximum binding of 150 that doesn't fluctuate they know that they will be able to sell a lot of tables so more jobs the government is delighted you get a promotion all is very well but the following year country A firms in country A export tables full of tables arrive on a boat and then country B says yes yes I will collect only 150% but I take only three tables. So you'll say, wow, I didn't think this was the deal. I thought that once I negotiate my tariff and if of course I pay the tariff at the border, I thought that I could export as many tables as I wanted. So the logic of this other rule, Article 11, is to basically protect the value of negotiated tariff maximums. So that's the prohibition of quotas at the border as a principle. The last basic principle, if you want, is Article Three, and that's a fundamental provision of the GATT. Still today, maybe a great deal of dispute would be resolved if countries respected the principle of national treatment. What is this principle? Very simple. It's a principle that says, governments cannot use any form of regulations to protect their domestic production. So how does it work? Because this principle is simple. Government cannot protect their domestic production, cannot favor domestic goods. So governments can collect a tariff at the border, that's legal, but once the good has crossed the border, It must be treated like other domestic similar goods. Put yourself again in the shoes of the negotiators at the beginning when these rules were created. You just negotiated, I mentioned, an excellent tariff binding at 150. Your tariff was sometimes 300, 200, now maximum 150. You go back home, you're promoted, everybody's happy, produce tables, more jobs, Boat full of tables arrive at country B the following year, country B says, yes, yes, I will respect my binding, I will collect only 150%, but your tables, you will sell them only outside the cities, in small shops, only on Sundays from midnight to 3 o'clock, and on top When people buy your table instead of mine, there's a sales tax of 200%, but if they buy my tables, similar to your tables, there's no sales tax. So you'll say, wow, what's the purpose of negotiating a maximum tariff? I thought that once I pay the tariff, it's a club, and I'm treated like all the other tables. So that's the purpose of GATT National Treatment that prohibits Government from using either fiscal regulations, taxes, or other form of regulations to protect the domestic tables. Very simple, but terribly difficult for governments to enforce because people in, in the country B are convinced that the job of their government is to protect them, to protect their production. But this is the first commitment that GATT contracting parties took and still today WTO members. They promised that besides tariff at the border, they will never use protectionism to protect their own domestic production. And that's what we say the main goal of Article 3 on national treatment is to avoid protectionism. So these are the four basic market access principles of the GATT that influenced not only the creation of the GATT at the time, but that were at the basis of the new WTO agreement that introduced rules not only for tables and other merchandises, but rules for services and intellectual property. These four basic principles are the backbone of the GATT and still relevant today. Before we go and look at the exceptions, a few words on the history. The GATT, as I mentioned, was to be part of a bigger treaty, the ITO or the Havana Charter. And the United States initially had invited some 40 countries to sit around a table and try to fix maximums on tariff level. And the result of the GATT, the commitments that was at the end signed by 23 countries for some bindings on some products, was to become part, a chapter, chapter 5, of the Havana Charter. The Havana Charter, although signed, was never ratified by the United States, so the treaty, the ITO treaty, never came into force. Other countries got a bit discouraged about that the fact that the U.S. didn't want to ratify But the GATT as such was signed and came into force initially on a provisional basis on 1st January 48, And it stayed into force de facto, although formally it's not a treaty, it was never ratified. It stayed into force until the WTO came into force. And what the WTO did is that it took the wording of the GATT, and made it part of the wto part of the set of rules dealing with trade in goods so the gat of 47 does not exist legally anymore but the substance is now part of the gat 1994 that is defined as being the old gat plus 50 years of life of the gat so the gat 94 is the very wording of the old gat plus decisions, accessions, tariff negotiations that took place over 60 years, 55 years, until the birth of the WTO. So we've looked at the four basic market access rules, now let's look at the exceptions. The first exception that I'd like to talk about is not an exception. But initially, it was treated as an exception in favor of imports from developing countries. But early on in the WTO, the appellate body, in one of its reports, and repeated, said that provisions in favor of developing countries are not exceptions. Provisions in favor of developing countries that give them more time or less stringent obligations are really only qualifications of main rights which means that the developing countries don't have to come and prove that they're entitled to a special provision. Once they claim that they are developing countries, they remain developing countries, and it is for those who challenge that status or challenge the right to specific provisions to prove that the country in question is not a developing country. One of the first oldest provision in favour of developing countries in the GATT was the provisions of the enabling clause. The enabling clause enables rich countries to give tariff preference to imports from developing countries. So let's take an example. This is for instance DEC. And let's say that the tariff bindings on tables of the EC, its maximum, is 50%, which means anybody that exports table that is a member of GATT WTO cannot be requested to pay more than 50% ad valorem tariff on importation of tables. Fine. The enabling clause allows the EC to say, if tables come from developing countries, I will collect only 5%, without, if it comes from developing countries, without being threatened by Canada, for instance, Canada would say, oh, My tables are like tables from developing country. I'm a member of the club. I would also like to pay only 5%. Remember a binding is a maximum to be respected, but of course countries can collect less than 50%. EC can say, I have the right to collect 50% on importation of tables, but I want to build lots of schools and this year I put my tariff down to 30 This is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that the enabling clause allows for discrimination, positive discrimination in favor of developing countries. This origins from the claims in the early 60s that uh, from developing countries complaining that all these Basic market access rules are fine, but they export agriculture products and textile, which two products were more or less early on taken out of the GATT set of rules by rich and powerful countries who insisted that trade in textile remain subject to quotas and trade in agriculture were basically taken out of the GATT rules, although I'm a bit fast in explaining this, but there's going to be another lecture on uh, agriculture trade. But developing countries requested positive discrimination. It was initially negotiated in Ongtad uh, that set up the so-called General System of Preference and this was translated into the gat as a waiver to the most favored nation principle allowing ec to treat imports from developing countries differently from imports from canada for instance this is not mandatory it's a possibility that is given to the ec to impose a lower tariff on importation of tables from developing countries without risking an mfn challenge one of the big issue today in the WTO because the enabling clause that was initially there for uh, adopted in 71 for ten years in 79 it became part of the Tokyo round and in the WTO agreement it was formally codified as part of the constitution if you want of the WTO. So one uh, thing that uh, big problem today is whether, in giving tariff preferences to imports from developing countries, the EC can put conditions and make subgroups. And this, there was a big dispute. I don't have the time to explain this, maybe in another lecture. But the big question is, can the EC say, I will give 5% tariff uh, on importation of tables from developing countries, but those who have school and program against, for instance, child labor, then they will get zero tariff. Can the EC basically condition even better preferences on the respect of some human rights, some labor rights? This is not yet clarified. What we are sure, though, is that the enabling clause allows the EC to make distinctions based on the origin of the product, but so far the rule is that all tables, like table coming from all developing countries, should get the same treatment. So That's a first exception, which is, as I said, not really an exception. It's a fundamental provision of the GATT, mainly the only one in favor of developing countries. In the WTO now, we have many more provisions on uh, favoring imports from developing countries, but let's say that for today, where we focus on the GATT, this was the only provision, the only relevant provision in the GATT, although there are a few additional flexibilities in the area of safeguard. And this takes me to another exception of the GATT WTO, the possibility of safeguard. I'll do it very quickly, just so that you understand what it is used for. So, we mentioned these four market access rules, and if I repeat my example of tables, And here, we put a tariff of 150%. That's the binding that, of course, Country B must respect. And we also said, at the border, you cannot have quotas. Once the table is in the country, you must respect national treatment. And of course, Article 1 on Most Favour Nation Principle, that applies everywhere. A safeguard provision allows the country of import, country B, to take a break. And safeguards have existed for 50, 60 years in the Article 19 of the GATT. There is now a more specific agreement, the agreement on safeguard, that adds and clarifies and modifies a little bit Article 19. But basically, the safeguard allows for the following situation. The general safeguard is called to be a volume safeguard and what it says is that if imports of tables coming from A are phenomenal, extraordinary, the country B is entitled to say I need a break and I need some protection. And Article 19 allows Country B to basically ignore either its binding commitments and allows Country B on a temporary basis to go above 150 or allows Country B at its choice to ignore the prohibition on quotas and put a quota. So if I take a simple example, let's say that in 1999 these numbers are again completely invented. In 1999, country A exported to country B 100 tables. And country B also produces 100 tables to make the story simple. So that's in 1999. In 2001, in June 2001, already Country A has exported 100 tables to Country B. There is no bad faith. Country A has just found a new way to become extremely effective, and the volume of export is booming. Already after six months, 100 tables have been exported. Of course, the producers of tables in Country B start panicking. Wow, if already 100 tables, I will not be able to sell my own table. So the industry goes to the government B and says, please take a protection, help us a bit. Article 19 allows country B to raise its flag and say there is an emergency situation, an extraordinary amount of imports that is affecting seriously and threatens my domestic industry. And therefore, I will, Country B says, for instance, for six months or a year, I will collect 300%. I am asking to ignore my bindings for six months or a year. Or Country B could say for six months or a year, I will ignore this obligation and I will put a quota. No more than 150 tables in 2001, for instance. The way it is done is that the Country B will invite all members of the WTO, at the time GATT, and try to agree with them. How long the safeguard period for and what level and what form, a quota? or a tariff. If there's no agreement, usually country B will go ahead, will do what it wants, and then country A or other exporter will sue country B and will say, your safeguard is illegal. In fact, you violate your bindings or you violate your prohibition of quotas without justification. This is the general basic safeguard. We have now more specific safeguards. There were, for 10 years, a special safeguards on textile, because textile's restrictions and quotas in the wto were tolerated for 10 years only and then phased out subject to special safeguard we have special safeguard in agriculture also we have a special safeguard for development very important where country b can say i have an infant industry and for some time i'd like to be entitled to ignore my basic market access rules so i'm Describing this generally, very generally, so that you are aware that it is wrong when people say that GATT is just about free trade, no protection. GATT is not about free trade, first of all, because tariffs are legal. But also, GATT contain rules that allows the importing country to protect themselves, at least on a temporary basis. Under the GATT, there was no time period for safeguard measures. Under the WTO, it's written that safeguard should last only for four years, could be renewed only once, unless it's an importing developing country, in which case the total period of safeguard can go to 12 years. So that's another fundamental uh, set of exceptions that we should really call conditional rights. Now another exception is the series of general exceptions. The general exceptions are listed in article 20 of the GATT and the general exceptions basically and they're there for still today 60 years allows a country, a GATT contracting party, to give priority to policies other than trade. So far and so long as the importing country is not protectionist. So I'll look at one or two of these exceptions, but they all function the same. If you have with you the provisions of the GATT Article 20, have a look at it. It's made of two parts. A first paragraph that we call the chapeau of 20, even in English, and then a series of subparagraphs that identify specific policies. So 20B, for instance, talk about health of animal, plants, and human beings. Country A talk about public morals. Country G talk about environment. So how does it work? So if I take country uh, exception A. Exception A says that a member, a GATT contracting party, can take a measure necessary for the protection of public morals. It's under this provision that countries are allowed to invoke religion to treat imports differently. To ban Muslim country can clearly ban importation of alcohol, for instance, and they can invoke Article 20A. 20b allows a country to protect its people uh, from health and disease, etc. And g, protect the environment. But the chapeau of 20, the first paragraph of Article 20, says that we should not, members are not entitled to use the exception uh, for disguised restriction on trade or unjustifiable discrimination. This is what I call the lie test. And let me give you just one example of an old case that I will discuss briefly, as if it took place today. Thailand decides to ban importation of cigarettes from the United States, and it is sued in the GATT. We are in the 80s, there is no NGO movement yet, still there's a mini trial, in the GATT, the World Health Organization comes and says Thailand is correct, smoking is bad, smoking is bad, etc. But then questions are asked because Thailand was invoking Article 20B and said I ban importation of cigarettes from the United States because it's bad for the health of my people. Fine, no problem. Now let's see whether this is very true. First question, why do you ban cigarettes just from the United States? Then, of course, Thailand says, well, cigarettes from the United States, you know, they're always bad, etc. Well, the real question is, if, for instance, the cigarettes from the United States contain more nicotine Then you could have a domestic regulation in Thailand that says cigarettes to be sold in Thailand must not have more than X level of nicotine. You don't target only the United States because maybe cigarettes from Mexico or cigarettes from other countries are as bad as the American ones. You cannot focus on one country. And furthermore, and here I'm changing a bit the story to make it more simple and quicker, Furthermore the panel said to Thailand it's funny that you say that you do it for health reason because i notice that you have taxes much higher taxes on domestic cigarettes on uh, imported cigarettes than on domestic cigarettes but why do you give subsidies to your domestic producers of cigarettes if you say that you have a policy for the protection of health of your people so altogether if I may say, what the case law said to Thailand is, yes, you are entitled to ban cigarettes, for instance, for health reasons, but then it should be accompanied with some domestic uh, policies and uh, regulation that confirm that this is really a health uh, policy and that it's not protecting your domestic producers of cigarettes. Again, Always the same obsession in GATT WTO, avoiding protectionism, while allowing countries to give priority to policies other than trade if they do it coherently and in good faith. The goal of the chapeau of Article 20 is to control the good faith of the the countries in question, imposing policies that restrict trade. So is it possible to restrict trade? Yes, it is, so long as it is done for good faith policies recognized in Article 20. Now, so we saw the first sort of main exception, safeguard. Now, the general exceptions, I didn't go through much details, but we know that there are exceptions that allow Muslim countries, for instance, to restrict importation of alcohol so long as they're coherent. If they produce alcohol, export alcohol, and import from other places, then they cannot invoke religion to ban importation of alcohol from some country. Third exception, and a fundamental one, it's the exception that in favor of regional trade agreement. This is quite uh, complicated, and you will have another uh, lecture just on regional trade agreements. But Two words to explain what it allows. It is first an exception to the most favored nation principle, but it can also be considered an exception to more than the most favored nation principle. What is it? It is basically a rule that allows two countries to develop preferences between the two that they will not give to the outside world. So I'll take again a very simple, not to say simplistic, example with tables and we'll know uh, a bit what it means. There are two main regional trade agreements discussed in Article 24 of the GATT. It's the Free Trade Agreements and the Customs Union. So first, let's look at what is an FTA, a Free Trade Agreement. And is it legal? Article 24, could not prohibit free trade agreements. They existed before the GATT. You had at the time preferences between some countries like the Commonwealth uh, in place. You had also regional sort of cultural or security agreements between countries. So Article 24 recognized the right, the right of states to form preferential agreement so long as they respect certain conditions three of them mainly. We'll look at these conditions that are also in the form of the definition of what is a WTO compatible free trade agreement. So let's say two countries A and B. B has a binding on tables let's again take our little tables of 50 percent. And let's say that A has a binding on table at 30%. Remember, each country has the maximum tariff it is able to negotiate on each product. A and B talk to each other, and let's say they both produce tables, they both export tables, and they both import tables. And they say, let's form a free trade agreement. Is it possible, and if so, at what conditions? So yes, it's possible, but one of the first condition, and I hope you can see well, one of the first conditions is that country A and B eliminate, eliminate, and that's the first condition, eliminate all restrictions, eliminate all restrictions on substantially all the trade between the two on substantially all the trade between the two. I hope you can see this. My writing is very bad. So, a free trade agreement is an agreement where A and B will agree, for instance, to eliminate all the trade restrictions, so no tariff, for instance, zero tariff on trade between A and B, on substantially all the trade between the two. So, of course, not only on tables, but on all the trade. Substantially all the trade. That's one big question. What does it mean? Is it 90% of the trade? 80% of the trade? Is it only quantitative, qualitative? This has not been sort of regulated clearly yet. But importantly, It's an exception to MFN because while before when A was exporting table to B, B would collect 50% tariff on the importation of tables from A or from any other GATT WTO member. Now, by exception, because there's a free trade agreement, assuming it is compatible, B will collect zero on importation of tables from A, and the same, when B export tables to A, A will collect zero because trade restrictions, including in particular tariff, are eliminated on substantially all the trade. Now, a free trade agreement, and this is where the distinction comes with customs union, A free trade agreement is an agreement where both parties, and of course there could be more, but we do it with two countries now, where both countries maintain their autonomy on their external trade policies. So B, maintain a tariff with the outside world at 50, and A, maintain a tariff at 30. There are, however, two important points here. One is about rules of origin, and the other one is about control at the border. Rule of origin will determine what is a table coming from A that will get zero tariff, what is a table coming from B that will get zero tariff if exported to A, what is a table from the free trade agreement that will benefit from the zero tariff, internal zero tariff. These are rules of origin because in reality nowadays, a table may be built in A, painted outside with uh, paint coming from country B, where the worker comes from country W, etc. So is it really a table from A? Because only the table of A will get zero tariff, only the table of B towards A will get zero tariff. The tables coming from outside the FTA will remain subject to the respective tariff of the two countries. So fundamental issue, rules of origin to be checked that determine what is the flag of the product, what is the nationality. Now imagine (coughs) that you are a producer of table in country W. And this country is party to the GATT member of the WTO. W used to export, has enterprise here, that used to export tables in Country B and they used to pay 50% tariff. W firms here think they're very clever. They say, what I'll do is I'll take my table, I will export them in Country A, I will pay only 30%, and then I will pass here and I'll pay zero and then I save 20% at valorant tariff. The firms in WTO, instead of going here, paying the tariff at 50%, and then selling the table to the purchasers here, they think, I will avoid the tariff of 50%, I will export in country A, pay only 30% and then I will benefit from zero tariff from A to B because there's zero tariff there. No, says Article 24, unless tables are table of the FTA members of A or B, you can very well go here, pay 30%, but at the border here, there will be control of the nationality of the product, if you want, and an additional 20% will be collected so that B doesn't lose its traditional tariff collection. So, two important rules on free trade agreements. And now, Uh, Just a small point on customs union. It's getting a bit messy, the table, the charter. But the customs union, and I will redraft this, is contrary to a free trade agreement, an agreement where A and B decide to harmonise their external trade policy. So they will harmonise to end up with the same tariff. So if I take again this example, the same example, we had country A and country B. And we said that the binding of B on table was 50% and that of A was 30%. We said that a regional trade agreement, basically restriction on trade must be eliminated. That's very important. Eliminated on substantially all the trade That's also like in a free trade agreement on substantially all the trade. But for a customs union, and that's what we're discussing now as distinct from a free trade agreement, the two countries decide to harmonize their external trade policy and may need to give compensation, harmonization and compensation process. Why? Why? Because A and B decide not only that trade between the two will be free of restriction, but they harmonize their external trade policy. And often it is done in the form of an average. So here they would decide now on our average tariff will be 40% all around the customs union. But of course for country, let's take our little example, country W used to be able to sell table in country B quite happy because the tariff now becomes 40%. Fine. But if tables came from country, for instance C, country C used to export table to firms in A and used to benefit from a tariff of 30%. Now it's 40%. So country C is entitled to a form of compensation from A and B in another sector for instance for instance if C used to export also shoes it's possible that the overall tariff on shoes go down or up but it's possible that A and B says okay country C i see that now you become subject to 10% more i propose that that we give you an additional reduction on importations of cars. These are exercises of compensation under Article 28, very complex, but it's to make sure that the principle of Article 24 is respected. Countries have the right to form regional trade agreements and to give preferences to each other. The logic of that is that if trade increase a lot between two countries, they will both become richer and both import more from outside. So yes, countries have a right to do this, but of course this should not be at the detriment of outsiders. So preferences inside, you cannot ask the outside world to pay for it, hence the need to provide compensation if the harmonization of the policies of the two countries in a customs union lead to such a result. So I've done with you now, quickly, but an overall description of the four GATT market access rules and the main exceptions. There's an exception that I didn't mention is the exception for security that exists that is a bit like Article 20, but we have not much uh, case law on this, not much information, but again it allows a country to say, "I ignore one or all of the GATT market access rules for security reason. These are the main GATT rules that are still part of the WTO and that importantly have affected and were in the mind of negotiators of the WTO when they started creating new rules. What you can see on the chart, the other chart that you have with you, entitled Legal Structure of the WTO, you see if you look on the left hand side, Annex 1A, you have the GATT 1994, and I mentioned the GATT 1994 is the old GATT plus 50 years of life. And below the GATT 1994, you have a series of boxes. One is entitled, for instance, in the bottom, Safeguard, then Subsidies, then Rules of Origin. These are new WTO agreements, but they have done basically nothing but clarifying the old GATT provisions, sometimes little amendments, but all these additional agreements are nothing but expansion of the old GATT. That's why it's important to understand the basic GATT rules in order to appreciate what has maybe changed a little bit with the new WTO agreements. What I have not discussed today are additional rules that exist on subsidies and dumping. These rules are called uh, rules on undistorted competition. These are rules also called on fair trade. Because early on, countries said, yes, it's all very well, these tariff negotiations, but really, it doesn't help if one country has a lot of money and gives subsidies to producers and another one doesn't. So while in the GATT, there were very little unclear rules on subsidies, The WTO has developed further rules to regulate and control subsidies. The GATT also had rules on dumping. Very modest rules that again got further developed in the context of the Tokyo Round negotiation and in the context of the WTO. The rules on subsidies and dumping will also be the object of an additional uh, course, more uh, specialized course. But in a few words, I can just describe briefly what is dumping, what is allowed in terms of anti-dumping and what it looks like in this sort of basic framework that I've explained. Dumping is essentially a situation Uh, that is handled or provide or done by firms. Dumping is when an exporter of table, for instance, I take still my table at $10, the firm here decides to export its table to B, but to export it at, let's say, $7. And let's assume that it costs $8 to cost of production for this table and $2 of profit. I make it very simple. And then the firm thinks, OK, I will export it at $7. Why? Because there are also producers of tables here. And let's say they also sell their table at 10 I do this, firm says, because I want basically to eliminate the domestic competition. And I want to be able to penetrate that market. So I accept for a while to lose money. But I will eventually be able to gain market access. This situation is a very simple, not to say simplistic, situation of dumping. Dumping is a situation where a firm exports at a price that is below what we call the normal value. So here there is a situation of dumping because the price here The normal value is 10, and the export price is 7. So, we say that the margin of dumping is 3. The margin of dumping is 3. $3. What happens in reality? The domestic producers of table are aware that tables come in for sale at 7. Of course, here they pay the tariff. I'm not denying this but the tariff is applicable on seven. Firms panic, make a complaint if you want to the government, the authority of country B. They say there is dumping. What GATT allows and its article six, it allows country B to impose on the imports that come in at seven, to impose a surcharge called anti-dumping, a surcharge corresponding to the margin of dumping, here three. So the table will come in at seven, will be subject to three, for example, dollars of anti-dumping, and then become subject to the tariff. So Country B is not obliged, but Article 6 allows Country B to protect itself against importation, cheap importation. Why is it done this way? simply because country B is entitled to protect itself from the following threat. Governments, and this started early on after the First World War, worried that if you allow firms in country A to export tables at such a cheap price, what will happen is that of course the cheap table at seven will eliminate eventually the domestic producers of table because consumers will prefer to buy identical imported table at seven dollars and once the domestic competition is eliminated the foreign producers will abuse its its position its monopoly position and will start increasing the price of tables at 8, 9, 10, 11 and 12. This is very bad in the context of international relations. So to avoid this, Article 6, and now there's a more detailed agreement on anti-dumping, allows country B to immediately raise the price of the table back to its normal price, if you want. We will see in the special class on anti-dumping and on trade remedies that there are now all sorts of provisions controlling the normal value Controlling whether the export price is, very, is really 7, the margin of dumping, etc. Many people oppose anti-dumping, many people like anti-dumping. Of course, it depends of your interests if you represent either the domestic producers of table who want protection or the exporters of table. The last comment before I conclude is on subsidies, and I won't give more details, or not much detail, uh, because this in, in and of itself is a world of rules. But just be aware that in the WTO context, there are general rules on subsidies and more specific rules on subsidies for agriculture. Rules on subsidies did not exist much under the GATT, but were more developed under the WTO. But for subsidies, there's also what we call a two-track approach. A government can always challenge another one and say, the subsidies program that you have in place are contrary to the rules of the GATT. But also, a country, in some circumstances, is entitled, at the border, A bit like anti-dumping, if an imported table arrives at the border and has benefited from illegal subsidies, the importing country is entitled to collect at the border an amount to compensate for this illegal subsidy level. So again, I'll be very simple with simplistic numbers. If the table here costs $10 to do, to produce, And the government helps the firm and gives a $3 subsidy so that the table can cross the border and be exported, for instance, it's a subsidy on exportation, be exported at seven. B has also domestic producers of table. The table arrives at seven, there is a mechanism called um, uh, countermeasures that allows countervailing duties is the more explicit terms we could call it also anti-subsidy that allows country B to initiate an investigation to find out what is the level of subsidy is it an illegal subsidy and if so this country is entitled at certain conditions to impose as I said a CVD countervailing duty or anti-subsidy duty, a bit like anti-dumping, that basically allows country B on the importation of table to impose a CVD here of $3, so the table really comes in at 10 before you impose the tariff. So very quickly, we have gone through all the backbone provisions, legal provision that underpin the GATT system and now the WTO system. In further lectures, we will look at more specific aspects. But I think this is important to understand where we stand today. Thank you very much.